This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Let's talk a little bit deeper about those markets. Let's set the Business Week agenda. Gina Martin-Adams is with us, Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence, on the phone from New Jersey, and also Dave Wilson, our Stocks Editor at Bloomberg News. He's on the remote access uh, from New Jersey as well. Hey, Gina, let's start with you. Uh, It really does feel like... Uh, I know we've talked about this before, but the trade is really contingent on what's going on in Washington and, you know, the possibility of more stimulus. Yeah, I think that you're spot on. I think it's a combination of stimulus as well as vaccine progress or lack thereof, which really has the market captive. Underneath all of that, though, there is some interesting things happening with earnings. And so as we are sort of launching into earnings season, we've been focused on that. And I do think one of the underappreciated reasons stocks have rallied so far so fast over the last couple of weeks is we've been through a rare period of upward revision momentum headed into an earnings season. Uh, and on almost all times uh, quarterly in history, you see stock revisions going in or estimate revisions going into earnings seasons are lower because companies obviously love to lower expectations so they can beat those expectations and analysts comply by lowering their estimates. But that's not what we saw over the last month. We actually saw estimates move higher. So while I do think we're definitely going to remain captive to policy and vaccine um, news, earnings are going to play a part in the next few weeks as well. Dave Wilson, you know, it's interesting. I was looking at the banks uh, coming out with numbers. And, you know, the J.P. Morgan numbers, for me, obviously, and a lot of investors, kind of a bellwether kind of name for that sector. A little bit better than expected, but the commentary coming out of Jamie Dimon and team is still pretty darn cautious, isn't it? Well, I mean, there, there is reason for that concern, especially with the lack of additional stimulus uh, you know, as an issue for a whole lot of consumers. So you can kind of understand the caution. And then beyond that, if you look at what happened in the third quarter, and not just at J.P. Morgan, but also at Citigroup, they really benefited from what was going on with their reserves for loan losses. Uh, Actually, J.P. Morgan cut its reserve rather yep. than adding That's to it. That's what's wild, right? Isn't it, though? Yeah. So, you know, if the earnings and the revenue are beating estimates and, you know, a big reason for that is what's going on with loan losses – well, then the concern is whether that's going to be done again next quarter or whether things are going to go in the other direction. Similar story at City, which took a bigger hit after its results came out. You know, smaller loan loss provision than analysts were expecting, at least the ones we surveyed here at Bloomberg. So, you know, you look at what's going on in the 11 main industry groups, the S&P 500, you see the banks and the other financial companies among the worst performers on the day. So not the uh, kind of start to earnings season that you would like, at least for the banks. Right, exactly. And, you know, as you said, Paul, you know, sobering from Jamie Dimon, you know, that one line where he said many won't survive another year of total lockdown. I mean, that is certainly worrisome. Gina, come on in on that, because I do wonder... I don't know how much of what happens this year in the trading environment will determine what happens next year or or are the two years disconnected like how do you see it yeah i think that what happens this year is meaningful for next year to the extent that we remain locked longer in 2020 it produces greater upside in 2021 is the way i see it i mean frankly analysts are already anticipating a rough 2020 right through to the end we're supposed to be in earnings recession 
Um, the financial sector certainly no different than the rest of the S&P 500 staying in earnings recession right through to 2021. So the worse it is now, the better it presumably gets in comps in 2021. And that's the bizarre reality of kind of swinging with the, the earnings cycle. I think, um, you know, my interpretation of those comments is, yeah, sure, if we remain fully locked down, that's a problem, but we're not fully locked down right now. I think there's a lot of fear that we may have to go into greater lockdown um, over the course of the winter months, and that certainly is uh, problematic for earnings going into the first quarter. But the reality of the situation is the third quarter was a lot stronger than the second quarter, and that's showing up in the broad S&P 500 earnings, even if the smaller regional banks are unable to participate participate because they're worried about loan losses. So I think it really is a mixed story, um, depending on what group you're in. But the broader story is the worst 2020 is, the better 2021 is anticipated to be. Right. And 2020 is already supposed to be so awful. Yeah. Uh, that there's only been room for upward revision. <laughs> We're going to talk smaller regional banks, too, with Anton Schutz uh, in just a few minutes. So we'll get yeah, a little absolutely. bit of the lay down there. Hey, Gina, you know, one of the things we've been seeing or I've been seeing in the marketplace is this push-pull between do I stick with my growthy big tech names uh, that have gotten me this far or do I try to be brave enough and look to the other side of this pandemic and the likelihood of a, a pretty rapid economic improvement given, if nothing else, the easy comps, and then maybe I want to rotate into some cyclicals. How do you kind of view that yeah. discussion? It is. It's quite a battle right now, and it's been going on for about a month and a half where there is a lot of push-pull, um, to use your very, uh, very correct wording, <laughs> between sectors and styles. Uh, certainly, if you look at small caps as a good example, over the last week, small caps have absolutely surged, uh, and it, the surge has been driven by cyclical performance, super cyclical, so, uh, doing significantly better, particularly in the industrial economy. The same happened about a month ago in the large cap index, but we've been back and forth right. in large caps ever since. I mean, people cannot let go of that tech exposure, <laughs> and that's been tough. Well, but well, in general, underlying the, the trend, I think you do see a little movement into cyclicals trying to anticipate a better 2021. I'm not a momentum chaser, but man, when you look at the differences in returns, it's hard not to kind of jump on um, that train. Hey, Dave, got 20 seconds. Quick tease for your chart coming up. Well, you got uh, banks kind of stumbling along as they've been today. That's nothing new. But you look at what's going on with the home builders. They've been taking off and setting records. What's that contrast about and does it last? All right. Good stuff. Uh, appreciate it, both of you. Dave Wilson, he'll be back a little bit later on. Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser along with Paul Sweeney. Well, we know earnings season got underway today. A batch of big bank earnings. Two of the biggest U.S. banks uh, kind of gaining some confidence that the pandemic won't send the economy into a slide anytime soon. That as a result of them setting aside a lower amount of loan losses in the third quarter. So that was interesting. Even so, their stocks are under pressure about some of the comments we heard from them uh, throughout those calls. Anton Schutz is back with us, President and Chief Investment Officer at Menden Capital Advisors. He joins us on the phone from Florida. Uh, Anton, it's great to have you here with Paul and myself. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? A little frustrated with the price action today. Yeah. Well, what do you? How do you? I well, how do you explain that on a J, on JPM and City? They're both down. I mean, the overall market's yeah, down. Well, There's some, but yeah. I have this wonderful parallel for you today. That's really easy. <laughs> Apple, right? I mean, Apple releases all these phones. Everybody's selling on the news, and yep. you know, I, I think people realized and thought that they would have good quarters. They did, and they're selling on the news. And I think 
I think City is selling off further simply because there's just not a lot of clarification on on what's going on with regulatory order, how much it's going to cost them. You know, I think with the transition in leadership, I think that lack of information just cost that stock. But the quarters were fine. Yeah, the quarters were fine, Anton. I agree with you there. Just kind of reading through some of the, the commentary from management on their conference calls, there's definitely, I, I would say, you know, an air of cautiousness that was even a little bit higher than I had been discounting in the marketplace. I think these are these folks, Jamie Dimon and company, are kind of saying, hey, this economic recovery, it might be slower than we would all like, and it may drag on a little bit longer than we would all like. That kind of came through in his comments. Did you take away the same? Well, I, I think Jamie was pretty, pretty, uh, pretty negative, I guess, sort of after the second quarter. And obviously, we're, you know, we've done a lot better. I, I, I feel like he's conservative. And I, you know, I, I don't think that's wrong to be conservative. But, uh, you know, I, I think I think that leaves lots of room for him to beat. Uh, I, I certainly agree with his conservatism that he talks that way. And I think everybody's frustrated that there's no stimulus plan for the consumer. Because in particular, you know, both J.P. Morgan and City have, the very large uh, consumer businesses. And, you know, that's really who's getting those, you know, enhanced unemployment benefits, the $1,200 checks. You know, those are the customers who, you know, repay or don't repay their, their credit card loans. So I think yeah. that's really, you know, there was some grandstanding there. Well, and we knew that early on. Like we were, you know, it was interesting to talk about delinquencies. And I think initially people were not necessarily spending new money. They were paying down their credit cards, you know, but, you know, and kind of being smart <laughs> and responsible. Um, I want to talk a little bit about City because Corbett really got took a beating on his, on that call. Uh, one of the analysts over at B of A said, why isn't Citigroup the new Wells Fargo in terms of the regulatory issues? Why isn't it? Or is it? Well, I mean, you know, if you sort of look back on what got Wells Fargo in trouble, I mean, <laughs> unfortunately, you know, Doing damage to uh, retail customers is very different than city making a mistake. So I, I don't think, you know, the regulators or, or uh, Congress people are going to go after city because they've ripped people off. I mean, they have it. They didn't, they didn't do anything that egregious. Unfortunately, their systems weren't great. The only person harmed were city and city shareholders by sending out a wire they shouldn't have sent out. But it, it proved they're vulnerable to mistakes. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why they were fined. And, and obviously, they're going to have to spend some money to make sure their systems are up to snuff so they don't make mistakes like that. And I think that's the unknown. Nobody knows what they're going to spend. But being put in a, in a much bigger doghouse, I think their doghouse is not as big. And by the way, I like Wells Fargo right now. I think they're going to be coming out of the doghouse. Uh, I'm not Finally, sure right? quarter with earnings. Yeah. Well, it's been years. And it yeah. takes years because they really – got into trouble and a lot of things changed and, and and more things have to change. But I think there's there's actually some light at the end of that tunnel. Well, it's a cultural change, finally, yeah. I think, over at, at um, Wells in terms of Charlie Shaw finally bringing in an outside person. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I, I think the other thing that's going to change there is the expense structure is going to change dramatically. I mean, they've talked about cutting $10 billion of expenses. I mean, that's that materially changes their earnings. Um, and also, you know, as soon as they get out from under being able to grow their balance sheet, you know, again, earnings estimates can go up substantially. And I don't think they're that far away from that. I think it's been a lot of corrective actions over the last several years. Uh, I think they're getting close. Hey, Anton, when we 
talk about the big money center banks. We have the capital market side of the equation that can offset to some degree that really tough net interest uh, margin story for the banks. How about some of the smaller regional banks that don't necessarily have that capital markets piece of the business? What's the bull case for you know some of these regional banks in this low interest rate environment? Well, um, you know, first of all, mortgage is going to be a bigger percentage of many of these. And my focus is particularly on the on the lower tax states and the you know where people are migrating to to the south and southeast places like Florida and Tennessee and Texas and and um, you know this loan growth is better and people are buying houses and so it's not just refinance activity in mortgage it's actually purchase activity you can finance the home builders uh, and you know what I really think the the next leg that's coming is a supply chain coming back to the U.S., which will lead to loan growth. And it will eventually lead to loan growth for everybody, including the big guys. But, you know, if you think about uh, all the manufacturing that can come back here in the supply chain, I mean, if tariffs weren't enough, this disease has really cemented that. And I think that you're going to start seeing the second half of next year being a, a loan growth story, you know, both for the regionals and larger banks. Well, that's what we're going we're gonna to get into. We're going to do a little bit of news, Anton, because uh, our Gina Martin-Adams kind of set that up for us about whether the smaller regional banks, are they going to be participating in some of that loan growth, especially into 2021? So we're going to continue our conversation with Anton Schutz, President and CE, uh, Chief Investment Officer, excuse me, of Menden Capital Advisors. He's on the phone from Florida. His uh, RMB Menden Financial Services Fund, by the way, it's up almost uh, more than 12% in the past month, putting it in the 97th percentile. So we'll talk a little bit more about his pick when it comes to regional banks. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. We are fortunate to have with us for another segment, Anton Schutz, President and Chief Investment Officer of Menden Capital Advisors. He joins us on the phone from Florida. So Anton, thanks for hanging around uh, with us. Let's talk about investing in regional banks. What do you look for? Is it really the region? Is it management? Is it asset quality? How do you kind of rank some of those issues as you pick upon what is a a lot of regional banks out there to choose from? Sure. Well, I mean, the region is really important because, you know, that means even a poorly run bank can, you know, perform. I mean, if you've got a really good management team, they can take strong advantage of a region that's doing much better than other parts of the country. So that's really important. And, and you know, you talk about asset quality. When you talk about management teams, you want to know how they did last time, right? You want management teams that have been around, that's got a a few gray hairs and some battle scars and, and, and did well the last time around. And, and those are the management teams you're looking for. Uh, and you also want management teams that I call capitalists, right? People who own a lot of stock um, and understand that, you know, they could be a buyer, they could be a seller. Uh, there's lots of opportunities to make shareholders money. It's not about running a public company just for themselves. It's really important to me that attitude that management displays. What I love about you, Anton, I mean, you're you're very fair and honest when things are tougher in terms of the investment environment. I know I think the last time we talked to you, you said it's been pretty tough, you know, in this regional bank space. You're having a good month, though. Um, what's, what's kind of changed, do you think, in terms of your strategy and or just the environment for regionals? Well, I think you've seen a little bit of a yield curve steepening. You've seen the 10-year move higher other than today. Um, you know, a little bit of inflation out there maybe some more stimulus causing, you know, inflation, whether it's post-election or pre, you know, everybody knows it's coming. Uh, and, I, you know, the other thing is, is that, you know, as everybody got into earnings and got closer and started to think about it, 
you know, the consensus was that the banks were going to beat. And, and I still think that, that more of these banks are going to beat as things come on. And I think more banks are going to beat uh, 21 consensus, too. Consensus mm-hmm. has to come higher for 21. So those are all positive developments. Um, you know, that certainly led to some of these moves. Anton, what are some of the names that you like here? Again, we, we have seen the banks do better in this last month. Maybe people are a little bit more willing to look to the other side of this pandemic and look for some of the names that could do well in an improving economy. What are some of the names that you're looking at at the moment? Sure. So, you know, I like uh, like the Southeast and Tennessee and, uh, you know, one bank in particular that has a pretty good footprint in both Florida and Tennessee is a company called First Horizon. Mm-hmm. They also have a strong mortgage unit, uh, which is going to have a, have a very good quarter. And they also have a uh, fixed income, basically broker dealer, uh, First Tennessee Securities. And, and so they're going to also have a good quarter from that. There'll be a lot of merger noise. They merged with another bank called Iberia and they trade below book value. They've got a very strong dividend yield. And like I said, there are two geographies that are doing much better than the rest of the country. So uh, they've got a lot of a lot of positive things going on here. And it's a self-help story because right. I think they're going to be able to cut more costs than advertised. And First Bank Core, I know, is another one. Just got about 30 seconds here. What's the what's the take sure. on that one? Well, it's Puerto Rico. It trades at yeah. you know, about 60% of book value. Drug manufacturing is about 30% of the Puerto Rican economy. So, um, you know, all you have to think about is some of the drug supply chain coming back wow. here. And you know that's going to going to happen. $5 billion of CARES Act money has already gone to Puerto Rico. And the president just released, uh, I think, $11 billion of FEMA funds. So Puerto yeah. Rico economic growth. Hey, listen, I'd be remiss because you're uh, a loyal listener. And I know you were listening yesterday and you know, um, uh, Charlotte uh, St. Howard of uh, St. Martin, exact, excuse me, of the, the Broadway League. You guys are friends. Well, <laughs> she's terrific. Uh, had the opportunity of getting to know her over the years, and she is a force. Uh, so they're all lucky to have her on their side there. Yeah, yeah. We're certainly uh, rooting for them because it's been really tough for the theater area. Hey, Anton, thank you so much. Really appreciate all the time uh, that you gave us on this Tuesday. Anton Schutz, he's President and Chief Investment Officer at Menden Capital Advisors, uh, joining us on the phone uh, from Florida. And, you know, I always love talking to him, Paul, because the regionals, you know, we always talk and always cover, of course, the big banks, but the regionals are just often have a great window into what's going on in local economies. And uh, I just love getting his perspective. Yeah, you're exactly right. And that's, uh, you know, those, think about some of those small, mid-sized banks that really have, you know, their finger on the pulse of what's going on in their markets. Totally. And, and as Anton said, you know, go to some of those regions where there is economic growth. People are, are growing uh, and going, and, and that's in the Southeast. Well, Florida has become a bit of a battleground when it comes to the November election. This Bloomberg Businessweek story, it's about a state that is critical to President Trump's reelection, and it zeroes in on senior voters and what the early trends are showing. We love checking in on all things related to the election and the campaign trail with our own Josh Green. He's national correspondent at Bloomberg Businessweek, author of Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Nationalist Uprising. Josh joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C., along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. Joel is on the phone in in Massachusetts, Florida, such an important state, Joel. Yeah, and, and as Josh writes uh, in this dispatch, um, it, we're really looking at an outcome here that for Trump to have any um, real certainty of, of getting back and retaining the, the Oval Office, he really needs Florida. And so the Democrat strategy is obviously to try and take Florida out of his hands. But what Josh actually gets into here is the, the there are some early numbers that we're seeing from Florida and the swing among seniors 
um, which uh, is a, a demographic that Trump had had locked down last election, is just 180'd and is already in early numbers is, is veering towards Biden. Josh, what does that mean in the grand scheme of things? Well, basically what it means is if the current trends continue, uh, Trump isn't going to win Florida. And if Trump doesn't win Florida, he's not going to win the election. Um, but what's so interesting about this is we've all been reading about these nightmare scenarios where states don't count their vote and it's thrown out for weeks and the election is contested. What's great about Florida is that it counts its votes early as they come in. So about 20 percent of the votes, the early votes already cast in the 2020 general election uh, have been cast in Florida and have already been counted. And Florida updates those numbers. So what we did was we took a look at who was voting early. And the, the thing that really jumped out was that seniors, voters age 65 and older, older were voting at a 10 times greater clip in 2020 than they were at this point four years ago. If you look at the poll numbers, we wrote about this in our election issue of Business Week in September, uh, a group that I called Swinging Seniors. Uh, <laughs> seniors supported Trump by not necessarily what you think it might mean, so I better explain. Seniors supported Trump by about 17 point margin in 2016. Uh, the latest polls in Florida have Biden winning seniors by 15 points. Wow. So if you add those two things together, a huge swing to Biden among seniors and a huge outpouring of support, uh, it isn't surprising that this is good news for Biden. And if it keeps up at this pace, uh, what I say is we, we'll know on election night uh, whether or not Biden has won Florida. And if he has, I think there's a very good chance that he's going to be president. So, Josh, what has the president quote unquote done wrong? It's certainly not for lack of effort down there. He was just down there last night again campaigning. What's really been the change? Well, uh, there have been two things. I mean, number one, and the easy answer is COVID. He was down there campaigning last night at a gigantic maskless rally in Orlando, um, which, as you might imagine, uh, spooks an awful lot of seniors. If you look at the main driver of the senior vote, it's been Trump's handling of the COVID pandemic. Uh, doesn't seem to have a lot of inspired a lot of confidence among older voters. Not necessarily surprising, but. You know, as I say in the piece, the big question about early voting is, are these new voters? Is this is this genuine enthusiasm or have older voters simply moved up when they cast their ballot? Are these just people who vote anyway on Election Day deciding to vote early through the mail because it seems safer? Um, that's certainly some of it. But the other interesting factor here is that it appears to be much broader than that and much broader than COVID. Because if you go back and look at the uh, results of the 2018 midterm elections, there was, once again, a huge spike in senior voters. And, of course, that predated COVID. So what we can conclude from that is that seniors are much more eager to vote and seem to be much more willing to vote for Democrats now than they were in 2016. And if those trends continue in Florida, uh, where they're especially pronounced because there are so many old people there, uh, it, it really spells bad news for Trump. Well, and what's interesting is you have to think, Josh, that the Trump camp is a little bit worried because you think about the video that he did, you know, <laughs> after coming out of the hospital. It was aimed directly at seniors. Yeah. So when Trump was was cooped up in the White House, when he was still contagious with coronavirus, he shot a, a kind of an awkward cheerleading video on the on the lawn of the West Wing. Um, that was aimed at reassuring seniors, you know, I love you, I care about you, you know, so on and so forth. I think that was a clear reflection that his campaign staff was looking at the same numbers I am and saying to themselves, uh-oh, you know, unless we change the minds of these senior voters, 
pouring out to the polls and and to the post office to mail their ballot, we're going to be in real big trouble. Let's try and turn this around now. I think the problem is, you know, it's really hard to change public impression of how you handle the pandemic. If you come out of the hospital sick with COVID and then turn around 10 days later and have a maskless rally like Trump did in Florida last night. Josh, um, you know, one of the things that I learned in the story that um, uh, I thought was really interesting is that Florida is actually uh, counting these ballots as the absentee ballots, mail-in ballots, as they arrive, basically, so that in theory, at least, there's a pretty high likelihood. And election officials in Florida have even said, you know, like, don't don't hold us to it. We might need longer than the day to know who the the winner is, but the the mechanism of being able to count so many of these votes ahead of time makes me wonder, when you look across the country at other swing states, potentially, what what kind of timelines do other states have for, for counting ballots and uh, officially announcing uh, results of their elections? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a great question. I mean, there are certain states like Oregon, Colorado, Florida, who do a lot of voting by mail, a lot of early vote counting. Um, they've done this for years and years and years and have a fairly, fairly good system. That's why we have such a good glimpse of who's voting in Florida. Um, but the thing that worries a lot of people is that because of the COVID pandemic, you're going to have a lot of mail-in voting everywhere, including in battleground states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, uh, that A, aren't accustomed to counting floods of, of early votes, and B, and this is a little crazy, have laws that forbid uh, election workers from beginning an early vote count before Election Day, which only makes this process even harder. And as a consequence, there have been a lot of you know, worrisome scenarios uh, bandied about about you know, if the election comes down to Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, we may not know for weeks until all these votes are counted who the actual president is. And, of course, there could be all sorts of shenanigans in the meantime. Um, I think what this Florida data tells us, at least in the direction that it's trending, is right. you know, there's another alternative, and that is that Biden is going to win Florida early and none of that other stuff will matter. God, it just is so interesting. Um, Josh, we always learn stuff when uh, you report and bring it back to us. Josh Green, national correspondent, Bloomberg Businessweek. Thanks to you, as well as Jill Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. We do want to point out that Michael Bloomberg, of course, the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg News, pledged last month to spend $100 million in Florida to help Joe Biden's election efforts. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so Paul Sweeney, man, back and forth, back and forth. That is the world of Washington right now. Um, I know House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, she told her, I think, Democratic colleagues that President Trump's latest proposal for stimulus falls short of what's needed to really help out the economy and really battle the virus. So they are constantly going back and forth, and we see it play out in the financial markets. Meantime, we've had the IMF come out warning that the world still faces an uneven recovery until the pandemic is tamed. So we are not in a great place. So let's get into today's Business Week economics. Stimulus, definitely front and center. Let's talk about it uh, with Frances Donald back with us. She's Global Chief Economist, Head of Macroeconomic Strategy at Manulife Investment Management on the phone from Montreal. So Frances, I feel like, do you guys like have a Zoom meeting, like your whole team, and you just say, can you believe that these guys in Washington and gals just can't get it together? Because it's ultimately about stimulus and getting the economy back on track. Well, we have plenty of Zoom meetings, but most (laughs) of the time what we talk about is how this is a lot of noise. We basically tend to focus on two key stories. One is that we know we're getting a fiscal package at some point. Everybody knows this. Now it's just about when we get it. 
Do we get it before the election? Probably not. Does it then mean we get it in Q1 2021? Yes. So the fiscal trade is still very much in play, even though we get a lot of these headlines going on. Well, the problem yeah, go ahead. is that the longer we have to wait for it, the longer we risk an economic accident. So when I watch these markets selling off because of the stimulus news, what I interpret that as is not, oh, no, we're not getting stimulus. It's that we're leaving ourselves open to more vulnerability before we get there. And well, that's the fundamental problem with these headlines. And that's what I just want to jump back. That's exactly it. I mean, the longer we wait, right, the more, you know, the tougher the drop is or that we may stay there even longer or that we'll need more stimulus to get out of it. Yeah, that's exactly right. So when we look at globally other developed markets that are maintaining their foot on the fiscal pedal, they're not at risk. So now we're starting to see a bit of a wedge here created by the U.S. experience of the recovery and the European, the Canadian, a variety of other G10 economies. So the U.S. is really opening itself up, not just to vulnerability or increasing its probability of a double dip recession. It's also putting itself out there in stark contrast to the rest of the world. And that, of course, is going to start to have implications for assets and some of the relative trades out there. Yeah. All right. So, Francis, this scenario that looks like it's playing itself out in in terms of uh, we're going to have to wait for fiscal stimulus. What are you, really the risks here that you see? Is it more deeper unemployment, maybe longer lasting unemployment? Is it business investment that just won't or take much longer to come back? Where will we pay the price, do you think? So my biggest concern is really on the employment front. And that is because we know that structurally high unemployment, the longer you've been unemployed, the harder it is to get rehired. You have skills degradation. People get frustrated. They drop out of the labor force. And that tends to be really sticky. But what's so challenging about this recovery, and I know we're all rolling our eyes already, we're tired of hearing about the K-shape recovery, but the K-shape is so important because the K-shape is telling you that the manufacturing side of the economy can continue to just reaccelerate very aggressively, even in the absence of stimulus, but the services side of the economy will lag. And what does that effectively mean? It means that the stock market, which is heavily leveraged to manufacturing, will continue to diverge from the economy underneath it. And that's why that K-shape becomes so critical. And the longer we wait for fiscal, the more that K-shape, the larger the wedge between those two sectors of the economy. I love that you mentioned K-shape. I was just uh, reading something from Peter Atwater, who coined it. um, And I love talking about it. I do wonder, though, God, I do. I mean, are you getting at all, Francis, a feel of what 2021 is going to be like? Yeah, so I I have this three-phase framework to talk about the recovery. Phase one was the rapid rebound. It's behind us. Phase two is the stall out. It lasts for a year and a half until the end of the virus. And then phase three is what we call the new normal. But one thing that I've been advising a lot of portfolio managers to think about is not to wait until we're on the other side of COVID to make the trades that are associated with the other side of COVID. And by that, I mean, as we sit here waiting, as we talk about things like fiscal, as we wait for the vaccine, What's effectively happened? Monumental changes to the way that the fixed income market is trading. We have extraordinarily low interest rates that will stay that way. And we essentially have financial repression of the curve out until the tenure. So we're in an environment where the way that we think about inflation mitigating or inflation working its way through the system, a steeper bond yield, all these factors are really getting heavily manipulated by where we are now. And I do believe that's tradable even as we wait for what 2021 looks like. So, Francis, uh, Carol and I just did a story on Florida and the election and some of the positive polling we're seeing there for former Vice President Biden. 
if, in fact, we do get a Biden win, maybe even a move to the Democratic uh, Democrats in the Senate in terms of getting a majority, how's that play into your outlook? It implies that we get a, a very sizable fiscal package, perhaps slightly more. But the key trades that I think work in this particular environment, which is massive issuance, um, fiscal spending, extraordinarily low interest rates that may move down lower, deglobalization, they work no matter who wins. So, you know, we've, we've been victims of this before, where we look at polls and we feel like we have confidence in what's going to happen. Right. I'm not going to make that play that game. I don't want to do that. So find the trades that work no matter who wins, and there are plenty of them. I, I think trying to game the election is a fool there right now. The only thing I will say is everybody should read Josh's story, because what's interesting about uh, Florida is that those votes, those early votes go right into the number. It's not like they're held until later on. So it's it's kind of interesting about that. Hey, just got about 30 seconds left here, Francis. Um, Paul and I were messaging back and forth, stock market leverage to manufacturing. Is that really true? We all kind of keep thinking about this market being more high tech or, you know, leverage to the fangs. Is it really leverage to manufacturing? Just quickly. Well, why don't you think about it this way? Instead of saying it's leveraged to manufacturing, think how little of it is leveraged to actual services and the everyday household and consumer activity. And if we put it that way, then it becomes very clear that if people are suffering, unemployed, have trouble getting food on the table, you can still see tech stocks rally. So maybe that's a different way to think about it in this K-shaped recovery. Really think of it as consumer services versus non-consumer services. All right. Appreciate that. Um, Great conversation as always. Francis, thank you so much. Francis Donald, she's Global Chief Economist, Head of Macroeconomic Strategy at Manulife Investment Management on the phone from Montreal. Love her energy. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) It's interesting to see how, you know, invest uh, and try to take out the political risk is another takeaway for me. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, just about 12 minutes, 11, 12 minutes left in today's trading session. And it's certainly been one where we've seen more of a risk-off trade today. Let's get into it uh, with our next guest, Kevin Miller. He's Chief Investment Officer at Evaluator Funds, and he's on the phone from Minneapolis. They've got roughly uh, $635 million in assets under management. Um, Kevin, nice to have you here with Paul and myself. I got to first ask you about Minnesota. Uh, the virus numbers are going up. How are you? How are you? And how's your team? Yeah, everybody's doing well. Uh, thank you for asking. Thank you for having me on this afternoon. Um, yeah, it, you know, we uh, thankfully uh, we're in a good position for everyone to be able to work from home and not have to commute and be able to uh, safely socially distance. And so, so our from a corporate perspective, we've been we've been doing real well. So, Kevin, you know, the market's been doing real well uh, as well, um, uh, although today a little bit unsteady here. It seems like the market is factoring in that the political risk, which as recently as several weeks ago was kind of a negative, a headwind for this market. Now it seems like the market's saying, all right, we're not going to have a contested election. It looks like Biden will win. He may even bring the Senate along with him. Is that kind of how you're factoring into your outlook? Well, that's that's uh, that's the 
$10,000 question, right? I mean, I only uh, asked the good ones. How, <laughs> how, how are we going to play this? I, I, I see three op- outcomes, obviously. Uh, you know, one, a clean and clear Democratic win, uh, two, a clean and clear Republican win, or three, you know, a, a contested uh, outcome. And quite candidly, I, I'm still thinking that there's a contested outcome. But once that gets resolved, and, and if that is the case, we, we anticipate the market to pull back maybe 5 to, to 8%. And then, um, you know, once this gets resolved, we still see 20 and 2021 as a very strong year, pretty kind of pretty much regardless who's in the White House, just because if, uh, if Trump's in the White House, we expect to see tax cuts and, and stimulating the economy through that mechanism. And then if, if Biden's in the White House, we anticipate uh, an increased spending and uh, get stimulation through that. But then 2022 and beyond that, then we have to look to see what new policies are put in place and how that it impacts you know, the economy and the markets, etc. So I demoted you. Don't tell your chief investment officer, and I, I realize you're CEO, so forgive me for that, <laughs> Kevin. Um, but but I do wonder, so it sounds like the, the election outcome, you're not really too worried about what it means, at least for the 2021 year. That's right. I, I think, you know, if anything, it's going to give us an opportunity to deploy more assets. Uh, we will probably start pulling a little bit off to the sides here, uh, latter part of this week and uh, you know what's the worst case scenario that you know we miss it and the market you know stays flat or even goes up a little bit um, the probability of that happening uh, well that that's a little that's a small loss compared to uh, seeing our accounts pull back maybe five to seven percent and we think we can redeploy at that point all right so what kind of s- sectors or names uh, if we do get an entry point should we be looking at Kevin well, I don't think you want to be playing games right now. You want to get good, steady, strong companies that have strong balance sheets, good cash positions, uh, things that will perform well for, you know, we're all not back. The economy's not totally reopened yet. So uh, I know this is a, you know, kind of a, it's maybe somewhat boring, but um, three that I like are Microsoft, uh, Walmart, and Visa. All three have great cash positions, great free cash flow, very established in their industry, you know, highly recognized, uh, and they all bring certain elements and uh, diversification to their services that uh, others in their area may not be quite as capable of. So, on any pullbacks you're at it, you would add to those positions? Is that, is yeah, that what I you would, would suggest? That's correct. And, you know, if someone is just getting, I just got this asked the other day, you know, I have some money I want to get in, what should I get in? Well, I, I always tell people, you know, divide how much you want to invest in a, in a stock or a fund, an ETF, uh, divide it into thirds, put a third in right now, give yourself some opportunity for a pullback at a level that you're comfortable with, 5 to 10% redeploy the other third. If that doesn't happen within a set period of time, let's say two to three months, then redeploy the other third and then do the same for the last third. And Get yourself fully fully vested, invested maybe uh, six months down the road. Um, that seems to work easier for people to walk into the market when we're at uh, very yeah. close to all-time highs. Yeah. Hey, listen, though, let me ask you about Microsoft because they've had quite a run. They're up 42% this year. I mean, so... Again, I said, you know, would you buy and pull back? Would you buy it now or no? Again, you'd wait for that pullback. Well, if yeah, if I like, I, I we currently own it, so I would just wait for the pullback. If I and I have such a high level of belief that there is going to be a pullback, I would tell anyone right now just to wait. You know, give yourself a month. Uh, worst case scenario, it goes up a little bit from here, and you miss out on that. Yeah. As opposed to taking advantage of a pullback. Yeah. Well, Kevin, I don't. I'm gonna. F- 
pass along your entrance strategy to one Tom Keen, who is famously in the triple leverage all cash fund right now, and he's looking for an entry point, so I'll p pass your strategy along. How about for those, Kevin, that maybe have, you know, they can afford from a time frame perspective to look to the other side of this pandemic. Is it time for those folks to maybe rotate a little bit into some more cyclical names out of maybe the Microsofts, the, the visas of the world? Uh, I yeah I would I would still I, I would give it till uh, late Q1 early Q2 of next year. Uh, there's going to be plenty of upside. There's going to be plenty of opportunity. You know as well as I do that uh, the majority of this market has been carried by six to seven individual stocks. So mm -hmm. there's still a lot of stocks out there that have yet to perform, and there's no sense in in, in getting too aggressive. Uh, let, let the market play out and then take advantage when that opportunity presents itself. Hey, one last question. I mean, you've got, I think, six managed evaluator mutual funds, and the, it's all about different risk tolerances. So I, I am curious, you know, what's, what funds are doing the best this year? You've got from very aggressive to very conservative. Which are the outperformers? And just got about 40 seconds here. Yeah, the, uh, thank you for asking. Relative to, uh, we compare those investments to their Morningstar peer groups, mm -hmm. and uh, relative to the Morningstar peer groups, we're really, really doing well. We, we pivoted heavier into equities on March 19th. We took some gains off the table in early July. We pivoted some of the equity, domestic equity over to internationals in early August. We pulled those back in September after the second wave looked like it was coming. And so we're doing very well, but the, the, the fund that's probably performing the best, that's most popular and heavily, most heavily used, is the growth fund. And it, our funds have a, a percentage range in the name, naming convention. That one is 70 to 85%. So that one will always have at least 70% in stocks but never more than 85%. Are names like Facebook and Amazon and Netflix in that one? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought so. Just a you know, safe guess there. All right, uh, Kevin, thank you so much. Kevin Miller, he is Chief Executive Officer of Evaluator Funds, uh, about $635 million in assets under management on the phone from Minneapolis. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.